0: Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton and today we are going to talk to Alison Stevenson about her new book, Intimate Integration, A History of the Sixty Scoop and the Decolonization of Indigenous Kinship. Professor Stevenson holds the Gabriel Dumont Institute Chair in Métis Studies at the University of Saskatchewan, where she completed her PhD in Canadian history in 2015. Her own family migrated out of Red River in the 1870s to Saskatchewan, where they married into local Métis families. Her historical work is concentrated on Métis diplomacy and the numbered treaties in Western Canada, and the history of the Sixty Scoop. This is the term used to describe the adoption of First Nation and Métis children by white parents, something which she personally experienced as an adoptee. Allison, welcome to Witness to Yesterday, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Greg. It's my pleasure to be interviewed.
0: Well, Allison, I usually ask authors the reason that they were compelled to write uh, the book that we're talking about, but in your case, the reason seems obvious at the same time, though, there are unique challenges in researching and writing a history about something uh, with which you are so directly involved. Can you describe those challenges?
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, you know at the outset i uh, when i when I was first thinking about um you know the history of of adoption. Uh, at no time did I think that um, I would include my own story as as part of my research, and so I strictly wanted to do a history of um, Indigenous interactions with the child welfare system. I, at the time when I first was thinking about this topic, I was a master student of Jim Miller, who had, um, of course, published on the residential school system. And so I thought that was one gap in the historiography was a lack of understanding of sort of 20th century interactions um, of First Nations and Métis people with the, the system of adoption. So it really wasn't, it didn't, um, I, unless, you know, I, I, if I were to maybe reflect you know, subconsciously, maybe it was sort of driven by that, but, you know, really at the outset, it was strictly from a, an academic interest in the topic, um, but perhaps my own, you know, just familiarity with adoption itself alerted me to the, you know, the lack of work in this area, but um, yeah, it was only, you know, in speaking with other Indigenous um, adoptees and ad- other Indigenous scholars who really encouraged me to um, include my own story in my work. So um, that was something I I hadn't been trained in as a Canadian historian. Um, You know, I had been trained in a very sort of traditional manner, um, you know, with objectivity, etc. It was initially something I hadn't thought of but only incorporated later on and still um, you know, it feels somewhat uncomfortable to me. Um, and I feel quite vulnerable, actually, by including my story in my published book. So, yeah, there are certainly complexities around um, doing topics that are so um, personal in many ways.
0: Well, it gives new meaning to the notion of participant observer for sure. So can you give us a quick historical outline of the 60s scoop before we get into some of the details?
1: Certainly. So, the 60s scoop, um, the term the 60s scoop is a bit of a misnomer. It does um, sort of acknowledge the time period in which First Nations and Métis children became overrepresented in child welfare systems across Canada. And so it was at this time, it was first noted that um, relative to the numbers in the general population, First Nations and Métis children um, were being apprehended and eventually adopted into um, non-Indigenous homes in the 1960s. But this really um, can be traced back to a much earlier period and really in 1951, actually, um, and the revisions to the Indian Act. That took place there that gave province uh, provincial law, was then applicable on reserve, provincial law around, say, neglect, adoption, etc., um, and extended also well beyond the nineteen sixties, well into the nineteen eighties. And some have even referred to it as a millennial scoop of indigenous children, as indigenous children continue to be overrepresented in child welfare systems across Canada.
0: Now, your subtitle refers to indigenous kinship. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what you mean by that? And are there any differences between, or historically, at any rate, between First Nations kinship and Métis kinship?
1: So, right at the outset of my research, um, I met with an elder, uh, Peter Nippy, who, you know, in talking about my my intention to write on in the sixty scoop, um, he he really encouraged me to look at Indigenous kinship um, without, you know, directing me in any specific kind of um, direction on that. But he, you know, just encouraged me to think and consider the importance of kinship. And so that's something that I always um, maintained that, that, you know, that to keep in mind the significance of Indigenous kinship to adoption. So, one of the key arguments throughout my my book is really the different cultural understandings of kinship in indigenous cultures broadly speaking First Nations and metis and non-indigenous cultures um, and what the, the origins of that and the kind of the impact that it then has on how adoption is perceived um, and i'm I'm sp- thinking specifically of the transracial adoption that uh, the 60s scoop entailed and so, in terms of the differences between um, First Nations notions of kinship, um, there's certainly amongst First Nations, there's different understandings of kinship, but I'm looking um, primarily at this sort of the Cree-Métis um, notion of kinship of Wakotwin, which is grounded in a uh, kind of a worldview that sees the relatedness of um Cree and Métis people with each other, with the land, um, and with all of creation, and then how this then impacts understandings of relationality between um, members, and how kinship is then um, enacted in daily practice and in uh, institutions such as adoption, and then the impact that the, um, the imposition of Western notions of kinship has on Indigenous societies through such programs as um, Adopt Indian, Métis, etc.
0: So what propelled the Saskatchewan government and other provincial governments for that matter to introduce policies that resulted in the adoption of thousands and thousands of Indigenous children?
1: Yes, so that uh, that's a... It, it's... Read the book, <laughs> you know, but just to, it, I mean, it's really a complex kind of, um, history. It's a sort of a historically specific time period where we see the rise of social work professionals, um, who are really, um, you know, they're they're seeing their expertise as being applicable to, to what they see as um social issues in First Nations and Métis communities as potentially resolving some of those social issues. So, um, along with what I'd mentioned the changes to the um Indian Act legislation, there was the rise of the professional social worker um and a belief in the ability of um social welfare professionals to enact positive changes in communities as had been done with say Immigrant communities in urban settings. So the same kind of idea was applied um, to First Nations and Métis people, um, and then with sort of increased interactions, increased interventions into homes, into families, we see um, increasing overrepresentation in these in child welfare systems, and when um with that overrepresentation um children going into foster care um into group homes etc the sort of the gold standard of social welfare um practice was adoption it was seen as the ideal setting for children to be raised and as sort of the legal the legal protections that were afforded by adoption were seen as ideal as opposed to the kind of um the temporary setting of the foster care family and so adoption was seen as like i said the gold standard in child welfare practice um, it, it, had the legal protections of a nuclear family for children, the, the changing of the name, um, um, the full integration of the child into the, the adoptive family, um, as well as served, um, not only sort of financial, uh, it's, Served a beneficial financial purpose as well by reducing the kind of the, um, the government expenditures that were being um, devoted for children to be paid for in foster care and other types of government funded settings, whereas the adoptive family would take on the financial responsibilities of these children. Um, as well as served sort of an ideological purpose as well, which uh, the children would be socialized completely um, in, these, in these families as a family member into Western um, Euro-Canadian ideals uh, around citizenship, family, etc.
0: Now, in your book, you draw an important distinction between government-initiated child apprehension policies and programs on the one hand and voluntary adoption on the other. To what extent, and I was amazed by the extent that you described in the book, but to what extent and why was the sexy Scoop really more about child apprehension than voluntary adoption?
1: Right. And so I think that it was really important for me to highlight that difference, because for many um, people outside of, academia or it's just sort of in the general public non-indigenous people that are, that have only a a passing understanding of, of the 60s scoop. there's this popular notion around adoption that it involves, um, an unwed mother voluntarily relinquishing their, their child to a loving, um, two parent, uh, um, middle-class family to be raised, um, in a in a setting that would you know enable her to carry on with her um you know her education uh, etc it's it's seen as an ideal kind of um institution that um you know is beneficial for children it's beneficial for adoptive families and it's beneficial for unwed mothers seeking that 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 option of relinquishment for themselves so That narrative is very powerful, and um, it was important for me to demonstrate that there are some very important differences in what took place in the 60s scoop with this um, more prevalent narrative around adoption to identify that we have uh, a situation where children are being, as the term scoop implies, that are being removed from families that didn't fit that similar kind of demographic or that narrative around um, the unwed mother. as as close certainly there are those examples there are those cases that 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 does is that is applicable but in the in a significant number of these are children that are being apprehended um, involuntarily so I wanted to capture that difference
0: right so what was the impact of these policies on the children involved and not only on the children but on their if I can use this. Were natural mothers and families, and what was the impact on the adopting parents and their families?
1: With adoption, it's slightly different to um, generalize um, than than is the case from residential schools, where it's a total institution. Because there's such variation, you know, family to family, situation to situation. Um, but in terms of what I can, based on the literature, what I've seen, what I've heard, um, the the majority of children. Um, you know, how they there were certain positive experiences, there were some negative experiences, there was a loss of connection and culture. Um, and you know, that has been noted as something that has been quite significant and that we see through the um more re- the, this recent 60 scoop settlement that has been um, I think it was 2017, a class action lawsuit of um of First Nations children um that. You know, express that, that loss of culture, loss of connection to their communities and a number of other losses as well as a result of the sixties scoop. So that's, you know, in terms of the, the children themselves, there's that, um, the cultural loss, the connection, um, at, irrespective of the kind of families that they were raised in or whether they were loving or, or otherwise. So, um, so there's that kind of example. And then in, in the families themselves, it, it caused a lot of devastation. Um, and there have, there's less um, academic work around the impact on families. And so that was something I had hoped to get at, but I just wasn't able to, um, you know, in, in a way that, um, you know, I can, you know, say decisively. I know that um, just based on some, you know, some of the evidence, mothers and fathers sought their children to have their children returned. They pursued, um, you know, they went to great lengths to have their children return once they'd been removed. Um, and we really see um, the politicization in the nineteen, early 1970s up until the 1980s, um, in terms of the communities um, you know experiencing the losses of these children, the um, in, the creation of these programs, um, of adoption programs, advertising, et cetera, And we see the communities really pushing back against this this intrusion. Um, the way in which the children are treated in these different foster homes, etc. So there's this, this politicization around child welfare that takes place among First Nations and Métis people. And then certainly for the adoptive families, um, they, you know, I, there have been some, um, you know, books written about this, um, and it. I, I get the impression that many families were not provided with um, adequate information about the, the children's, um, the context in which the children had come from. And so many, you know, simply believed the, the message that were provided by the government around the adoptions and the children's, um, you know, the origins of the children. And, um, you know, it's really, it did a real disservice, I think, to many of the families, you know, um, without the proper information about their children's indigenous heritage, children's cultures, um, and you know, the, the families that they came from.
0: I was quite struck by your references to the famous Métis author, Maria Campbell, and her stories of the road allowance people, in particular, her story about Jacob and his wife, uh, It was fascinating, so I'd like you to tell uh, our listeners how you came to use this story to illustrate the main themes in your book.
1: You know, I have been familiar with, you know, Maria Campbell's work, of course, Halfbreed was, you know, a really, you know, important, you know, turning point for me, reading her her book and, you know, knowing her somewhat, Um, but that story of Jacob, I'd, I'd read it, um, you know, some years ago and not really, um, you know, connected it necessarily to to the work that I was, you know, starting out at the time. It 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 just, it seemed, the more I read it over, the more I reflected on, you know, that the message of um, the damage of, of removing children from their homes and changing their names. In this particular story, it's Uh, in the context of the the residential school system and and the return of a child um, to the community without understanding their their family, their their name, et cetera, and the impact that has. And I encourage listeners to look into that story of Jacob. Um, But it really highlights the importance of kinship, the importance of... um, connecting to your community as well as the detrimental impact of child removal on indigenous um, families and communities. So um, it, it's a way, an entry point into the heart of um, the heart of this issue of child removal in the 60s scoop.
0: Well, uh, you use the word heart. I want to know exactly what you mean by the phrase "the bleeding heart, of settler colonialism, which is used more than once in the book.
1: So, in in the book, I, I frame the the sixty scoop and the removal of Indigenous children as in is a, a manifestation of settler colonialism. Uh, for listeners unfamiliar with that, that um, notion or that the theory of settler colonialism, it's this framework that um, sort of situates Canadian um, expansion. Um, and the emergence of the nation state of Canada um, as a method of indigenizing its, itself as a nation state on indigenous land through the erasure um, and elimination of indigenous people. And so this elimination takes a number of different um, pathways. And one pathway is the removal of children um, from their families, the elimination of indigenous kinship systems, um, etc. And so one of the facets of uh, settler colonialism um, that I that became apparent to me was this notion of benevolence, um benevolence of the settler, um the settler government, settlers themselves, missionaries, social workers, etc, that, um, you know, enact these various policies, whether they be residential school systems, or child welfare systems that are, Initially appear motivated out of um, ideals around benevolence, uplift, um, goodness, um, sort of to benefit indigenous people, which makes it incredibly difficult to identify these as problematic to many that that see it as as being um, motivated by goodness and uh, benevolence. So um, that this notion of the bleeding heart is I think um, an important concept to reflect on when we consider um, um, child, child removal in this particular case um, as um, an act of benevolence that in fact is incredibly um, devastating to many indigenous people and communities and manifests um, yet another um, method of indigenous elimination.
0: Well, like you, I grew up in Saskatchewan, and and you described Saskatchewan as the most extreme place in Canada in terms of its policies in removing Indigenous children. And I was particularly struck by one program called the Adopt Indian Métis Project in the province. So can you explain what this project was all about and why you regard Saskatchewan if, as ground zero in terms of settler colonialism more generally?
1: Certainly. The 60 Scoop took place across Canada. Um, certainly, it was more prevalent on the prairies in Manitoba, Alberta, and Saskatchewan, but also in BC. The term was coined, the 60 Scoop, by a British Columbia social worker, actually. But, um, but what distinguishes Saskatchewan is the the creation of a racially targeted adoption program called the Adopt Indian and in Métis. And so, um, as I had mentioned earlier, the increasing numbers of Indigenous children that were being apprehended and then, um, you know, in care in foster homes and group homes um, was perceived by the social workers in the in the Saskatchewan. Um, the Saskatchewan government is, bec- is becoming problematic as being expensive. And so there was a pilot program that was started in 1967 called Adopt Indiana Métis Project to see if um, positive messages of adoption of Indigenous children in what was a highly uh, racialized um, province with very negative perceptions of Indigenous people um, could. Um, you know, precipitate increased adoptions of First Nations and maybe children. And so what it was was a sort of an expedited adoption program that w- sort of coincided with a blanketed um, advertising campaign that used really um, kind of like lovely images of Indigenous children playing, um, you know, being, you know, cared for by oftentimes white caregivers in a home setting to kind of appeal to general Saskatchewan residents to think about adopting First Nations and Métis children. And so um, they would often be children older or in family groups. So it didn't fit necessarily the, the sort of the typical adoption and, and so required more of a sort of a, a campaign around the um, impressing people with the importance of this kind of um, you know family making system and so that was really the adopt India Métis program it really took place in Saskatchewan and eventually from the pilot it went throughout the province um you know really encouraging and you the the, the province kept very close track of the increase in adoptions and how many people responded to the ads and you know it was very much a, a study to to generate knowledge around
0: and this was uh, started in the 1960s or at some other time?
1: It was in 1967. Uh, it was piloted for, I think, two years and then became a province-wide. Uh, it was piloted in a, just sort of a localized, a smaller southwestern portion of Saskatchewan, deemed to be successful, and then sort of rolled out provincially in 1969 to nineteen uh, pro- around 72 to 3, which it then became Reach. It became a sort of a colorblind Um Adoption program, yet maintained much of the same. You know, the children were still primarily indigenous children. They were still being advertised, etc.
0: Right. You devote a chapter to the Green Lake Children's Shelter experiment in Saskatchewan. Uh, could you tell our listeners what that was?
1: Certainly. Yeah, it's a really, um, I think, a key turning point in the history of the 60s scoop. It was. It actually took place. Well. Well, before, um, in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, it was a, another experiment, so to speak, um, in providing child welfare services to specifically Métis children in Saskatchewan um, in an institutional setting. So children where children initially weren't being you know removed um, and placed in care with uh, foster families or adoptive families, they were removed and placed in an institution in Green Lake Um, where social workers etc you know cared for the children in more of an institutional setting and so eventually um, this this it was a very brief um, brief experiment with these Métis children who were then um, the knowledge that was generated about um, the how to socialize Métis children, um, how to interact with Métis children, who could then be adopted in place in white foster families, was really instrumental in um, providing a case study of the viability, essentially, of, uh, I guess, adopting, fostering Indigenous children.
0: Mm -hmm. So why were the Uh, 60s scoop style policies and the assumptions underlying those policies uh, confronted in the 1980s? And why did it take that long for these assumptions to be questioned?
1: In terms of within the Indigenous community, these were being confronted um, quite early on with the Métis Society and then the Saskatchewan Native Women's Movement. But you didn't generate, there wasn't the kind of the public um questioning um that really wasn't generated until the 1980s and so with that time period you have um I, I, a real transformation i think in 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 terms of the public um in canada and and elsewhere around understanding um indigenous rights um this is after decades uh decades after the white paper um the the rise of the um the Indian Brother, Native Indian Brotherhood, the FSIN in Saskatchewan. Um, and so there's much more awareness around um, Aboriginal rights, I think. Um, and then you see there's a lot of pushback from First Nations leaders across Canada in the 80s around child welfare as part of a um a larger um self-government kind of movement, but not as some scholars have. I argue that this is rooted not in sort of like a, based on a sort of a control, an issue of control, but rather rooted in acknowledging the importance of kinship and children and family to larger Indigenous nations.
0: Well, given the painful history of the Sixties Scoop, uh, and I'm going to ask you this, even though it's not a very fair question for a historian, but... What should be the future of what you term transracial adoption in Canada?
1: Right. You know, I think one of the things that has been mentioned um, through through the decades, you know, as, as governments, as scholars, as um, Indigenous legal folks continue to um, put forward solutions to um, what continues to be a very serious problem in Canada with overrepresentation of Indigenous children and child welfare systems, um, you know, there is this, you know, transracial adoption has really been, um, you know, eliminated for, for the most part, um, as seen as kind of the worst case of, you know, this, um, the 60s scoop. And so, you know, I don't, I, it, it is difficult for a historian to say, but I know that, um, First Nations and many people have you know long histories of adoption uh, as part of uh formation of kinship and rooted in um rooted in indigenous ways of caring indigenous beliefs around um you know family formation etc so you know with um using an indigenous framework for adoption rather than a kind of a coercive western framework might be a way to rethink um Rethink adoption in the contemporary context, um, and engage, you know, with indigenous knowledge keepers, etc., around what it might look like in the future. So, um, you know, eliminate. I think it's the coercive aspect of it, um, the lack of engagement with indigenous um, families, with indigenous people around what caring for children that need care might look like. You know, that is really. Um, you know, a consistent theme in much of Canadian history, but it 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 it, arise, it arose um, with with child welfare in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and so, you know, in terms of what the future might hold, I would say, in ter- in the spirit of reconciliation and the spirit of decolonization, um, I would I would hope that we could revisit um, adoption, to, you know, at some point.
0: Well, on that very positive note, Allison, I want to thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, it was my pleasure.
0: My guest today was Alison Stevenson. She is the author of Intimate Integration, A History of the Sixties Scoop and the Decolonization of Indigenous Kinship, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. And we want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on December 11th, 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.